Hi, I'm Jordan. And I'm Kit. Welcome to Starry Time, where stars plus lines equal stories. On this month's podcast, we are going to be visiting Virgo, the maiden of the night sky. Virgo is the Latin word for maiden or virgin, and it's one of the great 48 constellations identified by Ptolemy in the 2nd century. Virgo is the largest zodiac constellation with an area of 1,294 square degrees, and it is the second largest of all of the 88 constellations recognized by the IAU. Yep, definitely one of the largest, and as such, it accounts for 3% of the total night sky. Whoa, whoa, wow, whoa. Okay, maybe that's not that impressive sounding, but the smallest zodiac sign is Capricornus, and that sign accounts for just 1% of the total night sky. So the biggest zodiac sign is three times the size of the smallest, which is, of course, everyone's favorite seagoat dad, Capricornus, who we met all the way back in episode one. Many moons ago. So unlike Leo and Taurus, this constellation of Virgo has changed a lot over time. So for example, in Babylonian astronomy, this part of the night sky was actually comprised of two constellations, the furrow and the frond of Ura. I'm not sure I know what a furrow of fronds are, Kit. (laughs) Has something to do with harvest and, uh, you know, wheat and hearth and those kinds of things. Oh yeah, of course. Well, I know a lot about agrarian culture. I just have a particular blind spot for Babylonian agrarian mm-hmm. culture. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Thank you for explaining that to me. But yeah, that makes sense. Agriculture, hearth. Definitely. But I guess this ambiguity does beg the question, does this constellation, as designated by the IAU, look like a maiden to you? What do you think, Jordan? Well, my first impressions of this one is it looks a lot like a stick figure. Mm -hmm. Well, that's good. It looks like a stick figure about to fall down a staircase or maybe like just about to fall over like the first panel of a comic strip. And then the next panel, we're going to see them like on the floor going like, ow, I can't get up. Um, But yeah, it looked like a pretty human shape. How about you? What were your first impressions? Yeah, definitely roughly human shape, sort of has that stick figure vibe like Gemini does. Um, And of course, Gemini looks like the two stick figures holding hands. And um, the IAU image of Virgo looks more like a stick figure with a big head lying down to me. Oh, yeah, I guess it all depends on what angle you look at it. It could be falling down or lying down. But either way, it's just a matter of degrees. Other drawings of Virgo are definitely less human looking. So sometimes you'll see one that looks like a kite with streamers or a person with a polygon body. So like stick figures, arms, legs, no head. So some of the drawings that you'll see out there are a little bit less convincing to me, but I can definitely see from the IAU how they get to Maiden, which is not always the case on our first impressions of constellation drawings. Certainly not. But the last two or last few stick figures, maybe they're easier for us to conceive of, something like that. But if these descriptions don't help, you can find the constellation because it has a right extension of 13 hours and a declination of zero degrees. Right, and it's visible between positive and negative 80 degrees latitude, so basically everywhere except on the poles of the Earth. 
Oh no, Kit! This ruins my trip to Antarctica. <laughs> now I'm not going at all. Surely not. Uh, that is the only reason, I'm sure. Um, but in the Northern Hemisphere, you can see Virgo between November and August. And it's visible in the Southern Hemisphere between April and September. But the best times to see it are going to be in May or June when it's the full constellation that you can see in the night sky. We do have a helpful mnemonic to offer you to find the brightest star in Virgo, which basically tells you to start with the Big Dipper and then follow the Arc to Arcturus and then speed on to Spica. Speaking of Spica, it is the brightest of all stars in the constellation Virgo, which itself is comprised of nine main stars. And you'll be very happy to know that Spica's Bayer designation is Alpha Virginis. Well, it'd be pretty embarrassing if Bayer had missed this one, since isn't Spica like one of the brightest stars in the whole sky? <laughs> yeah, it's the 15th brightest star in the entire night sky. All right, gotta win the easy ones, Bayer. Okay. So its name means an ear of wheat, which is, of course, linked to the ancient Babylonian and Roman myths. It has a visible magnitude of 0.98, and it's located about 250 light years from Earth. And honestly, there is a lot of cool stuff that we know about this star, and it's because we've been observing it for a long time, because it is massive and it is bright. Based on what we know, our telescopes can't resolve this difference, but we know it's a binary star system with components that orbit every four days. And astronomers believe this system is actually relatively young. But the really interesting thing that's going on here is that the primary star is currently evolving out of the main sequence, and it's becoming a subgiant slash giant star. It has a mass that's 10 times that of our sun, which means eventually it's going to supernova, making it one of the closest stars to us that's going to supernova. Uh-oh, I don't like the sound of that, supernova. And what'd you say? It's 250 light years away? Mm. Couldn't a uh, supernova that impact the Earth? So I had the same question. <laughs> These are normal things to worry about. Um, but yes. <laughs> But NASA says that it would need to be... 50 light years from Earth for a supernova to seriously impact Earth. So we're okay. And honestly, even if we weren't, this one won't supernova for millions of years. So we'll be, you know, long, long out of here. Yeah, so it'll be the future life on Earth problem, whether that be sentient crows or dolphin civilization or whoever is inhabiting our planet at that point. It's their problem. Mm -hmm. All right, let's move on to something a little less scary and a little bit more familiar. Which is our guy Bear failing completely. Which brings us, of course, to the second brightest star in Virgo. Not Beta Virginis, but in fact, Gamma Virginis, which is also known as Porima. Porima is one of the names of the goddess of the future in ancient Rome. She is often discussed with her sister, who was a goddess of the past. So it's fitting that the system is actually a binary star system, which is comprised of two nearly identical main sequence stars. These two stars have an orbital period of almost 169 years. Nice. <laughs> and together they have a visible magnitude of 2.74. It's estimated that the system is only about 1.14 billion years old. Yeah, so that's a little bit younger than our solar system, which is estimated to be about 4.5 billion years old. A little bit younger. So while we're here... 
Kit, how do astronomers know how old these systems actually are? I think it's a really good question. And I think it's especially hard thing to sort of wrap your mind around, especially for systems that are really far away from us. So I did a little bit of research into it. And it seems like there are a few different methods to gauging the age of stars. So the first method uses star clusters. So I remember we learned star clusters are like the things like the Pleiades and the Hyades and Taurus. Mm -hmm, exactly. So these are basically regions of stars that all formed at the same time. So of course, like we talked about in the Pleiades, they aren't all the same spectral type. And there's often variation of what those stars look like in star clusters. But the fact that they're all formed at the same time allows astronomers to leverage what we know about stellar evolution to sort of figure out what how old the systems are. So they basically look at the mass and luminosity of stars in the cluster. They plot them on the HR diagram that we've talked about a couple of times. And then they kind of get a sense of where the youngest and oldest stars are based on where they fit into the HR diagram. And then they can sort of backtrack from there to figure out when all of those stars were formed. Interesting. All right. So they take a whole range and then they're able to work backwards from there. Mm -hmm. And of course, we all remember the HR Hertzin something, Russell Hertzenberg, Hertzin, Hertzenheimer <laughs> diagram, mm -hmm. something like that. Uh, it's a chart that shows us luminosity and temperature of the star. And it aligns with spectral classes and classifications that we all have learned so far, like main sequence, red giant, white dwarf, and so on. Mm -hmm. So the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram, but yes, that's exactly a great summary of it. Yeah, I think that's exactly what I said, right? <laughs> Hertzsprung-Russell diagram. Mm -hmm. I got it exactly right. This is a pretty common method for star clusters, but what do you do when a star is sort of on its own? Um, a, a lone star, as they're called. Apparently, this is a lot more mm. difficult, and astronomers have to rely more upon the rotation or the spin of the star. So this is a tricky thing to measure because we can't actually measure it from here on Earth. We need to use pretty advanced space telescopes. And the aging is based on this premise that younger stars spin faster than older stars. Kind of like how old people dance and shake their hips a little bit slower than how younger people dance. I, feel, I feel like any old person dance, dances better than I dance. But uh, just, like the, just like we're pointing out here, this method is actually a little bit less reliable than the HR sort of plotting approach because the rate at which stars slow down isn't necessarily linear. So the as it gets older and older, the spin doesn't get proportionally slower and slower. So it's a little bit of a tricky thing for astronomers to map onto. And so what they found is that this idea of looking at spin works best for main sequence stars because we can compare them to things like our sun and how old our sun is and how it is spinning. And so it makes it easier to make that comparison and to draw a conclusion. Yeah, it's a pretty good reference chart. We have a lot of data on our sun. Yeah. And this approach is called um, gyrochronology. Gyro just means spin. So it means the age of the spin. Yeah. Um, and my understanding about all these methods is they really just give us an estimation. This aren't this isn't a hard and fast exact number, but they give us a way to estimate these ages. Yeah, I think the idea is basically we take all the data we can, we try to compare various properties of stars, like the mass, the brightness, and spin, and then try to connect it to what we already know about how stars evolve through a stellar lifespan. Exactly. And there are some other methods and indicators, but those were the ones that seemed most common during my research. 
Yeah, and I imagine this is something we'll get better at as time goes on. Mm -hmm. And it does seem like an important question, you know, just in terms of understanding what could happen to our star and even the relationship between these stars and life and how it may exist in other star systems. So we're going to have to know more about when the stars get into this sweet spot that makes life possible. And of course, this will be very vital research going forward. Excellent. So let's talk about the third brightest star of Virgo, which is Epsilon Virginis, also called Vinda mm. Maetrix, from a Latin word meaning grape gatherer or grape harvester. First, I just wanted to say excellent pronunciation, Kit. You've come so far from our first couple episodes. But yeah, okay, grape gatherer, grape harvester. That gives me some real Dionysus energy. Okay. Yes, we're definitely going to see Dionysus in at least one of the myths we talk about. But you will be sad to know that this star is likely a member of the thin disk population of our galaxy as opposed to the thick disk population. Well, we all know Dionysus prefers a thick disk population, so we might be a little bit offended that we've drawn, drawn the connection here, but okay. Yeah, and if you don't know what we're talking about, um, feel free to check out our episode on Pisces the Fish, where we talk about these various kinds of populations in our galaxy. Yeah, do it. It'll be fun. Mm -hmm. So Epsilon Virginis is a giant star. It is 2.6 times the mass of the sun, and it's located about 110 light years from Earth. Its apparent magnitude is positive 2.8. And what's interesting about this star is that its spectrum has been used as a reference point for classification of other stars. Well, now that we've learned about Virgo's brightest stars, a solid one out of three for our guy Bayer, <laughs> it's time to see what other stars, planets, or space objects can be found in this month's constellation. Stay tuned for our next segment where Kit will tell us what has won her gold star of the month. As promised, we are back in our segment called Gold Star. In this segment, we alternate picking the star or space object in our constellation of the month that captures our mind, mm. our heart, mm. and our soul. This month, Kit, you're up. What was your pick? All right. Virgo, giant constellation, as we've already talked about. It has 11 Messier objects, including the very famously named Sombrero Galaxy. Oh, wow. That's right up there with Hamburger Galaxy. <laughs> Definitely in my top three. The constellation Virgo also includes the Virgo Cluster, which is part of the super cluster of galaxies, which is in our galactic neighborhood. I remember that from your post over on Twitter. You gave us all our galactic address. Yeah, there is some new research that came out about where we fit into the universe. So now we have a longer galactic address than we had before. Yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, mm -hmm. but you said we can find ourselves here on planet Earth. In the solar system, in the Milky Way galaxy, in the local group Virgo Supercluster, in the newly developed larger area that is called the Laniakea Galactic Supercluster. Yeah, so we got to add on that Galactic Supercluster to our address. So all this to say is there is a lot of neat stuff to choose from in Virgo. My runner-up, because I'd be remiss not to speak of this, is... M87, which is a very, very massive elliptical galaxy. M87 has a supermassive black hole at its center, as most large galaxies do. But what's interesting about this one is that 
it was the first black hole that we actually got a direct image of. So before we had the image of the supermassive black hole at the center of the Milky Way galaxy, we got a picture of the one in M87 back in April 2017. And this black hole is known by the Hawaiian name Povehi. Interesting. So we only started to get actual hard evidence and pictures of these black holes within the past five years. And this is the first one we got. And yet somehow this one didn't win your gold star? What could have possibly won over black hole portraiture? Uh, great question. Uh, so my heart and my soul was won over by PSR B1257 plus 12. <laughs> very catchy. Very, very catchy. Sure. Yes, very catchy. Um, it is also known as Lich. Wait, it's also known as Lich? Like the undead creature? <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, like a zombie. So it gets even better. So Lich is a pulsar, which is a rapidly spinning neutron star. Right, and for the audience, a neutron star is what happens to really, really massive stars when they die. So after that, they become incredibly small and incredibly dense. Right, so they aren't quite as small and dense as black holes, but they're right in that same family of objects. And just to clarify, not all neutron stars are pulsars, but all pulsars are neutron stars. Ah, classic square rectangle thing going on here, okay. Right, so basically... Neutron stars are all spinning so, so fast, but we can't always see the sort of jets or radiation beams that are coming out the sides of them. So pulsars are the circumstances where the way that we're oriented towards the neutron star, we can see the radiation beams. So this pulsar is 2,300 light years away from us. And the coolest part about this is that it has three exoplanets. Wait, okay, so orbiting around this pulsar, which is a remnant of a dead star? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And before we, like, dig into what that is, two of these planets, these exoplanets around this pulsar, they were discovered in 1992, making them the first confirmed extrasolar planets we had ever confirmed. Ever. Okay, wow. <laughs> All right, so you did wind up going with something that's a complete original, mm -hmm. just not the first picture of a black hole. Okay, these are the first ever exoplanets we ever found, and this mm -hmm. must have been really surprising to astronomers, considering they probably didn't expect the neutron star to be a habitat where planets would arise, mm -hmm. because it's the product of a supernova and all. I mean, I guess I can't imagine that was their first guess. Right, exactly, because there's nothing we could conceive of that could be alive on these planets. And it's it's thought that these planets were formed after some kind of secondary process after the supernova, because remember, a supernova is a huge explosion. It would have wiped out everything around it. So that's what they think, is there was some kind of secondary thing that happened after the supernova. And um, there are some alternative theories. That one seemed the most popular. So basically nothing, like I said, nothing we can conceive of could live on these planets due to the massive amounts of radiation. So as a result, the planets were named Draugr, Poltergeist, and Phobiter. Wow, this is incredible. Kit, they're basically zombie planets. Mm. What a great fall slash Halloween pick for Gold Star. Summer vibes of Leo Ring, you are out. And Lich, the pulsar with zombie planets, you are in. Let's take a quick break. And then we'll explore the mythology of Virgo.
Welcome back. We have talked about Virgo's astronomy and now it is story time. What did you remember about the myth of Virgo, Jordan? Absolutely nothing. Like, I think this might be the least I've remembered of any of the constellations that we've done so far. Mm. I just drew pretty much a total blank. I got to like Virgo and Virgin that that has some sort of relationship, but no sort of narrative. I'm not sure if I ever learned it, but either way, I couldn't remember anything about this one. How about you? Yeah, I basically remembered like Virgo as a virgin, not much else. I was actually kind of surprised to see Virgo the maiden as opposed to not Virgo the virgin, but I honestly couldn't put a mythological figure to to Virgo at all. Yeah, and after we've done the research, it's not that surprising to me that neither of us were too clear on this, because this myth doesn't seem to be completely unanimous about who this maiden actually is. Mm. There seems to be almost a handful of common associations in the Greco-Roman tradition. The first one we're going to get into is an association with Parthenos. Parthenos has two sisters, and one of her sisters is knocked up by Apollo. And when their father finds out, he assumes their sister has been knocked up by a suitor. And this is highly upsetting to him, because these sisters aren't married. So, their father, being a reasonable sort of guy, puts Parthenos' pregnant sister, Royo, into a box, and then throws her into the ocean. Mm. <laughs> oh, but don't worry. Roeo somehow survives, and she winds up having a son. Mm. Anyway, all this is to say that Parthenos' dad, we learn, not a good dad. Mm -hmm. In fact, kind of a scary dad. But anyways, life goes on, and Parthenos' dad leaves her and her other sister in charge of a bottle of wine. In this story, the wine is considered newly discovered, so it is especially prized. However, the sisters fall asleep, and a pig breaks into their house somehow and breaks this prize bottle. <laughs> Whoops. Whoops. Fearing their father, as they do, and they have every right to, mm -hmm. the girls either run and either throw themselves from the cliffs to their deaths and are therefore memorialized by Apollo because he loved their sister, or after they throw themselves from the cliffs, they are saved by Apollo and relocated to separate cities where for some reason Parthenos winds up becoming regarded a goddess. Uh, hmm. Okay, there is just, there's a lot going on in this myth. Yeah, it kind of makes my head hurt. <laughs> um, There's also an alternative version that Parthenos was the daughter of Apollo and her mortal mother and died young and was memorialized after her early death. I guess that kind of, like, that's a simpler story. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that first one, like, wow, it's not coherent. It needs some help. I mean, we'll keep the pig part. For sure, we'll the <laughs> constellation, right? But yeah, besides that pretty convoluted, you know, we have Parthenos, we have Royo, we have a dad, mm. we have Apollo. It's unclear how this all works together. So the second common association shares similar, some of the same themes and different themes with Parthenos myths. So in this alternative version, Virgo is associated with Irigoni, who is the daughter of Icarius. Wait, Icarius or Icarus? Or, wait, are they the same? Oh, Icarius. So not the flying close to the sun guy, Icarus, but a whole other guy who shouldn't be confused with the Spartan king, Icarius. Oh, no, no. We all know the Spartan <laughs> king, Icarius. But okay, not that one. Mm -hmm. What's going on with this Icarius? So Icarius is friends with Dionysus. Love the thick disc. <laughs> 
told you Dionysus would come in into this story. Um, so basically, Icarius is friends with Dionysus. Dionysus rewards Icarius for his hospitality by teaching him about winemaking. And Icarius, in turn, provides some wine to the shepherds who live nearby, who then get drunk and then get paranoid and then believe that Icarius has poisoned them and then they kill him. Basically, zero kill on these shepherds. They get a taste of this new straight-from-Dionysus wines, and they lose their mind. Right. So, Myra, Irgoni's dog, leads her to her dead father, Carius, and she is so bereft that she hangs herself. And in some stories, they say the dog... Either mourning Icarius or mourning Ergoni also jumps in a well to drown itself because of its grief. Okay, wow. So this daughter at least liked her dad. Yeah. At least in that sense, this is kind of the opposite of the last story and the last dad. But okay. Is yeah. there more to it? Yeah. So after this happens, Dionysus is outraged. So he, or maybe Zeus, like because... Who knows? Puts Ergoni into the star as Virgo the maiden, Buotes the herdsman, and the dog is either Canis Major or Canis Minor. And of course, Dionysus doesn't stop there. He also lets loose a plague on Athens that causes all the unmarried women to hang themselves. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, a behavioral plague. <laughs> of Very some... much ingenuity here, Dionysus. Right. And he won't end it until Irigoni and Icarius are commemorated. And this ends up happening in a festival called Ioria. That's nice. Okay. So lots <laughs> of hanging. Pretty dark myth again. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of sensing a theme here, if nothing else, between the past two. Mm -hmm. So let's get to the third one, which is relatively well known. Sometimes Virgo is also associated with the goddess Persephone or her mother Demeter. And this story goes something like this. Demeter is the goddess of the harvest and she has her beloved daughter Persephone. And in the far distant past, they had a peaceful and joyous life. And it was always beautiful in spring slash summer weather year round. They were living the life until one day, Hades, the god of the underworld, snatches Persephone from the earth and brings her down to the underworld to be his bride. Side note, he has Zeus's permission to do this, by the way. He asks Zeus. He says yes. Thanks, Zeus. Anyhow, heartbroken and not sure where her daughter is, Demeter begins searching the world. And in her devastated state, Demeter basically brings down her wrath upon the world, causing crops to fail and die, which of course leads to a famine. Eventually, Zeus has to interfere and relent and ask Hades, Hey man, my bad, maybe you should return Persephone. Unfortunately, before Hades returns Persephone, he winds up tricking her into eating part of a pomegranate from the underworld. And having eaten this fruit of the underworld, Persephone is then required to return to her captor slash husband Hades uh, between four to six months every year, depending on the narrative or, or how long your winter is. And the constellation Virgo is associated with her because it was visible in the spring and then seemed to set in the fall. I do definitely remember that myth. I didn't realize that it was associated with Virgo. And I, in doing our research 
for today. There's actually some really interesting stuff about Persephone and how people weren't supposed to speak her name and how these goddesses, Persephone and Demeter, are related to these older harvest goddesses. And so, yeah, there's a really rich history there that could probably be its own asterism. And the origins and interconnections of these various deities is actually really interesting. Yeah, and there's a final somewhat common association with Astraea, who is called the Virgin Goddess of Justice. Wow, that's a title. What if we just introduce each other like that now? We are actually going to hold off on this story because it's also related to the myth of Libra, the scales. So we're just going to have to wait till our next episode to get a deep dive into the Virgin Goddess of Justice. So even though I think this one actually is the cleanest of the Virgo myths, we're going to leave you with these somewhat more convoluted myths so now you know the whole story. Yeah, but I do still think there's plenty of plenty of things to think about with the myths that we have on the table so far. There's a lot going on. And also it reminds me a bit of our first episode with Capricornus. The myths are pretty distinct, and each one may be serving a slightly different purpose. Yeah, and I think to that end, it might make more sense to tackle them separately, and then maybe we can see at the end how they might fit together if they do. So this isn't the order we told them, but I think the Persephone myth is probably the easiest to interpret and understand, right? This is a classic example of a myth being constructed to explain the natural world. In this case, the changing of the seasons. And the very fact that the number of months she has to spend in the underworld varies could easily be explained by the narrative needing to change depending on you know, <laughs> where you are in the earth, where's your latitude, etc. Yeah, I think that's a pretty straightforward interpretation. I think that this story has been analyzed with that regard, and it's a good example of this stories to explain nature. And so that one definitely makes sense to me and I think has been discussed pretty widely. It's a pretty popular myth, as we said before. So I want to try to tackle Irigoni's story. And I think at first, when, when we were first thinking about this and reading the story and talking about it together, I was kind of like, maybe this is something about like drinking and the consequences of drinking. Yeah, that was my first impression too. I mean, that somehow made sense as like a cause and effect, don't drink too much or bad <laughs> things happen type of narrative. Yeah, but the more that I thought about it, the more I sort of wondered if they were telling this story in part to help us understand grief or to make sense of communal grief in some way. So Irigoni and her loyal dog die in their grief after losing their father. And when a part of me also kind of wonders, is it grief that's driving her or what would happen to a woman like Irigoni in this society without a father? Maybe she feels she doesn't have any choices. But what made me think about grief and explaining this behavior, suicide, right, is the fact that Dionysus starts having maidens die in this way, hang themselves in this way. And so it sort of made me wonder if there was some kind of event or series of events that actually happened in the real world in Athens at some time period that required some kind of explanation. So I'm wondering if there's something like that we might be missing that we're not seeing, and this was just a way to explain these really unimaginable deaths of these young um, un unmarried maidens. And so the story also kind of shows us how we cope with grief, right? To memorialize it, create ceremony around that loss. And that's what Dionysus demands in order for the deaths to end. So that's kind of what I was thinking about um, and wondering about as I tried to sort of think through what was going on in this myth and why they maybe told it. That was an excellent breakdown. I mean, those themes make a lot more sense to me than anything else. Mm. And I agree that like in the absence of context where this myth arises from, we're kind of left with the lack of clarity and understanding. But like you said, it could very well be that this myth was related to a historical event 
that we've lost the record of. There could have been a mass hanging, and they tried to explain it after the fact. And I think the Parthenos story, especially with its multiple different endings, may be a similar situation. Like Aragorn's story, we connect this back to drinking or wine because of the emphasis on, of course, the special bottle of wine. But I also wasn't that convinced of the perspective. Instead, the experience of Parthenos' sisters may be operating as a reflection of the norms at the time, of course relating to marriage and reproduction. It's not clear why Parthenos' sister survives and isn't in one of the stars. Yeah, I kind of find that compelling, if only because the... The way the father is constructed is so negative. Like, he's seen as this, like, villain. Yeah, and I'd be really interested to know when the various versions of these stories emerged, right? Was Parthenos given a happier ending in later retellings or earlier ones? And I think exactly as you said, it seems like in both of these myths, we're missing something contextually important that maybe it was part of the oral tradition. Maybe it was linked to some actual event. We probably won't ever know, but it seems like there's something something missing so in the end we have the demeter persephone myth to explain the seasons and then we have two more myths that seem to be about relatively normalish women and it seems like these stories are tied together by two things first the women involved are deemed innocent by virtue of being unmarried and virginal and second they are harmed directly or indirectly by men whether that's a father or shepherds or zeus or dionysus Yeah, and I do think we should draw attention to the fact that this is the only woman in the Zodiac, and she has these particular features, right? These particular features. And this story is such a divergence from the hero narratives we've heard over the last few months. And so in that way, it's refreshing. But on the other hand, the Parthenos and Irigoni stories are definitely similar, as you said, to Capricornus and Pisces myths, where the deeper meaning just seems really obscured. We have one woman in the entire Zodiac, and they leave her character and her development, who she could possibly be, entirely ambiguous. So, I mean, that says something about the society as well. Yeah, I think that's a great summary, and I think it's an interesting thing to sort of think about with these particular myths. And I think that we are definitely ready to retconstellation them. Welcome back to our segment, Ret Constellation. In this segment, we look for ways to modernize and deepen the stories of our monthly constellation, as well as to just find ways to make them less cringy. So what was your Ret Constellation this month, Jordan? What did you come up with? Well, I think we both avoided the Persephone myth, in part because there's already a lot of really good retcons out there. And maybe less good retcons. I saw a whole section on Goodreads <laughs> just titled Hades and Persephone Romance Retellings. So, um, you know, mm. check that out if you're interested in that. Thank you for the suggestion, Kit, but I don't think I will be checking those out. <laughs> and I definitely did not try my hand at a Persephone Hades romance. Instead, I think there's a pretty easy way to modernize and improve this story. So what we need here is a hero narrative. It worked great for some of our other characters, but how do you make a virgin hero? Let's start with a peasant girl, perhaps. Growing up in the middle of the country, seeing visions, perhaps. Visions of a greater purpose, of being told she may one day lead an army. Perhaps she's the only... 12 to 13 to 14 as she's receiving these visions and yet they're telling her that she will have an important role to play in a global war to come 
So what if in these visions, she was being told that despite the fact that she is just a maiden, she will in fact be at the front of a large army? Imagine if our virgin is perhaps French, <laughs> perhaps even fighting for her god, mm -hmm. perhaps even instrumental in the defense of her homeland against the incursion of the evil British invaders. Perhaps even our hero could have a name, a simple name, like Joan. Perhaps <laughs> eventually she could become the heroic spirit of a nation. So my reconciliation is to suggest everybody take a little deep dive into Joan of Arc. She's out there. The end, very depressing. Mm. I'm going to warn you right now. Mm -hmm. But if you need a very specific narrative of a virgin who kicks butt and takes names, Joan of Arc is my reconciliation. I can't write anything better than history has already done. Yeah, I, I knew it was Joan of Arc. I could see it coming. Uh, but part of the reason why we struggled this month was because we're lacking the social context um, and facts about the circumstances around these particular myths. But we don't lack that for some of these historical characters. I say characters, even though they're real people, right? Um, that we have that social context. Why not associate Virgo with somebody like Joan of Arc that has a narrative that's actually, as you said, it's dark like the other uh, Virgo myths, but it has the social context that we understand. Um, so yeah, I like that. I like Joan of Arc is Virgo. That's a, that's a good retcon. How about you? Did you come up with something else, perhaps maybe based in history? Mine was not based in history. And I decided to focus, since the Parthenos already has multiple endings and multiple versions, I was like, I don't want to touch that. Um, so I focused on the Irgoni and Myra myth, her dog. So I kept it kind of simple because there's not a lot to work with in the story. But in my retcon... Irigoni and Myra discover Icarius killed by drunken shepherds, and in her grief, Irigoni, instead of dying, she seeks out the Amazon queen and begs to be trained as an Amazon warrior. She trains with the Amazons, becomes this incredible warrior, and once she's completed her training, she returns with Myra to her home to confront and pass judgment on the shepherds who killed her father. She finds that they feel no remorse or guilt, and she hears from their daughters, the maidens of the town, how they have continued drinking and have become increasingly, increasingly more violent. As a result, she slays each of them, and then, of course, provides financial support to all the daughters from the riches she's acquired in her battles with the Amazons. So she's remembered as Virgo, protector of daughters, and serves as a warning to anybody who might drunkenly attack people weaker than them. And the title here is just The Judgment of Irigoni. And that's what I came up with. Alright, Kit. Time to wrap things up by getting a little less serious and a lot sillier in our final segment. Pop Culture Superstars. In this segment, we share our favorite and least favorite occurrences of this month's constellation in pop culture, and then we wish upon a star for what we think should exist. All right, Kit, for my least favorite, 
I chose an American hard rock band that goes by the name Virgos Merlot. They're a band that formed in Birmingham, Alabama, and in Orlando, Florida. They have one album, which is titled Signs of a Vacant Soul, which sounds like something a 13 or 14-year-old would come up with. And I went out to their Wikipedia page. I didn't give them the benefit of a listen because the first red flag, of course, was that album title. But when I got to the second red flag, which was that they toured with the band Creed and eventually their bassist joined Creed, mm. that was enough Virgo Merlot for me. So we are lucky that they only have one album gracing the world. How about you, Kit? What did you pick for your least favorite appearance of Virgo in pop culture? So, like you said, not a lot to choose from. And I was also sort of like thinking music related because there's just really not a lot out there. And then I came across something just bizarre. And I I don't know what to make of it because it's on Spotify. And so I put in like Virgo to take a peek around. And under genres and moods... There's a playlist titled Virgo Serial Killers. Wow. <laughs> and, wow, wow, wow. And there's also one called Leo Serial Killers, but none of the other Zodiacs we've covered have such a playlist. Interesting. Are these And these are made by Spotify themselves I or think, uh, a user on Spotify? I, I, I think it's a Spotify-created playlist, and it's... it's um. The playlists have, like, true crime podcasts, which I assume are about serial killers, and I assume they're about oh. Virgos. And um, so I didn't like that. I didn't like that there was only ones for Virgo and Leo. That I found, um, I felt it was rude. And I also... A little unsettling. <laughs> unsettling. A little unsettling, yeah. And I'm, a, I'm also just, like, kind of a wimp. Like, I am very much too scared to listen to or consume any media related to crime or serial killers. Like, nope, I don't want that. And I'm like, if you're going to make a playlist like this under genres and moods, make one for all of the Zodiac signs. Um, so that's why I didn't like it. But I did like... I did like a, a podcast titled The Capricorn Did It, and that one made me laugh, so I liked that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for bringing this to my attention. Uh, of course, I had not heard of this playlist or these two playlists. I feel, yes, a bit singled out, mm -hmm. as do you. But also, like, if you're going to do a Leo one, just do one Leo one. Don't even give Virgos the benefit <laughs> of the doubt, right? Just do one Leo serial killer mm -hmm. podcast. Mm -hmm. Let us own it. But having us and Virgo as the only two, yeah, that really rubs me the wrong way. Um, and also, I'm not a big fan of serial killer true crime stuff either. So if I had come along this playlist, I'm not sure I would have given it a listen either. Great choice. Or should I say, horrible choice <laughs> for whatever Spotify minion created this. All right, Kit. So we both searched long and hard to find our least favorite. Mm -hmm. Do you want to start? Maybe you can tell me your most favorite first, and oh. then I'll tell you mine. Yes. Okay. So, again, not a lot to choose from, so I had to do a deep dive. And what I found is a video game that is called Virgo wow. versus the Zodiac. Virgo. Whoa. Yes, so Vir Virgo is the Holy Queen. She has her friends Gingerbread Man the Cookie, 
Spica, the royal servant, and a witch, a witch looking lady who is called the masked lady. And their job is to dethrone the evil zodiacs. And the animation is adorable. It's like a pixel graphics um, RPG game. It looks really cute. It got really good reviews based on what I was looking at. I haven't played it, but I I love it. And I think it's beautiful. I like the Spike of shout out. Yeah, uh-huh. connecting it to the constellation. Yeah, well done. Virgo versus the Zodiac. Yeah. Well, I mean, she is the only woman in the mm-hmm. whole Zodiac, so I could see how maybe she felt like there's an adversarial relationship here based upon everything we know about the Virgo myths that already exist. Exactly. Um, she was starting to get a little paranoid about the rest of the Zodiac <laughs> ganging up on her. I would not be surprised. Right. So my most favorite, and it's a stretch to call it pop cultural, is the Virgo Moth, mm-hmm. which is a member of the Owlet Moth family, Hmm. which is called Noctuidae. And I chose it just because the idea of an Owlet Moth combining a baby owl and a moth (laughs) was one of the cutest things that I could think of. My gosh, I'm looking at a picture of the um, virgin tiger moth, which is one of these um, types of moths, the genus Virgo. And they're really cool looking. Oh, we might need like a, a, you know, creature corner asterism about these moths are so cool. It also kind of fits with our autumn spooky posting vibe, mm-hmm. you know, moths, creatures of the night. So yeah, that was my favorite appearance. And maybe we need more moths in mm-hmm. pop culture. Maybe yeah. that's the, the main takeaway here. You know, video games are great. Playlists are great. Um, music albums are great, but maybe it's time for some more moth representation. I'm not sure. <laughs> so why don't we get into what we wished for? What did you, what are you doing with the Virgo branding? Excellent. So this one took me a long time to come up with, mm. and you would think all that time would lead to a better answer. Not necessarily, <laughs> but I did, you know, start going back into the encyclopedia and I started seeing, of course, all these references to agriculture and mm-hmm. how Virgo, you know, used to be the god of wheat and the god of grain. And so I was thinking about wheat and grain that made me think maybe we could have some type of cereal, mm. maybe Virgo O's, oh. maybe a competitor to Cheerios. <laughs> Why not Perhaps just, it could why, be even a gourmet. Why not just Virgos? <laughs> that struck me as well. Okay. I hadn't decided which one was better, but that's why we do this podcast. We'll have to um, vote. So either Vir- yeah, either Virgos uh-huh. or Virgo-Os. Uh-huh. Um, and I had a few ideas here. Of course, maybe it would be like fancy, like Whole Foods, mm-hmm. Cheerios. Maybe there's a gourmet Virgo line there that mm-hmm. people are waiting for. That was that's really good. I like that. Um, wow. I'm I'm. You just have to imagine me walking around today, thinking of Virgos and Cheerios and Virgos and Cheerios in a rapid loop, and that's what I wish for, I guess. Yep. Um, how about you? I'm sure your idea is equally creative. Yeah. What's I... your Virgo branding that you wish existed? I also struggled with this one. Um, I'm not sure why it was really hard, but for some reason it was. Um, But what I ended up coming up with, and once I came up with it, I stopped thinking about it because I brainstormed for a while, really struggled. So I came up with Virgo Vacations. It is a a specialty travel agency that um, plans longer-term travels for the winter months. 
So you you go to Virgo Vacations. They help get you set up for a uh, sort of like a snowbird scenario where you just leave winter behind wherever it is you live. And they handle, they coordinate everything. They make sure, you know, you have everything you need for the whole winter um, in some place that's less cold and less wintry. So, yeah, Virgo Vacations. That's what I came up with. <laughs> it's got great alliteration. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it serves a real need. Mm-hmm. And also, I'd just like to point out that both my choice last month of the Leo sleep chamber mm-hmm. and your Virgo vacations are things we wish existed that helped us avoid winter. Yep. I think so, we are Leos. So. I think the seasons are turning. Between Virgo vacations and Virgo's cereal, it's only a matter of time before one of our wishes come true. Thank you for joining us today as we learned all about the constellation Virgo. Next month on Starry Time, we'll learn about Libra, the scales of the night sky. This has been Kit and Jordan, sisters, lovers of stars and stories. And we'll see you next time on Starry Time. <laughs>